Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. We've been talking about a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History that paints science and religion not as enemies, but as co-stars, working sometimes in the spotlight and sometimes behind the scenes. This month, a book titled Science and Religion, a Very Short Introduction, is being published by Oxford University Press. It's a bit unusual in that it was first published in 2008, but the discourse between science and religion has changed so much since then that about half the book required updating. Joining me now is Dr. Adam Shapiro, an historian of science and religion who co-authored the revision with Thomas Dixon of Queen Mary University in London. I asked Dr. Shapiro how the notion that science and religion as perpetual opponents took hold. The idea of a science versus religion conflict in many ways really traces back to the 19th century. This is a time where historians are inventing a narrative about things like the scientific revolution, and they are creating a story about Galileo as this sort of martyr to progress. Part of the impetus for this in the United States was a backlash against Catholicism. This was a time of massive nativism in the United States. There was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in some pockets of the country. And so narratives that looked at the Catholic Church as standing in the way of human progress were very popular narratives, even though other instances of religion and science clashing with one another weren't necessarily dominated by the Catholic Church, uh, this narrative of science and religion conflict became sort of self-sustaining. That really came to a head in the early 20th century with the controversies over the teaching of evolution in the United States. But even while that was going on, even while these narratives of conflict were dominating sort of social discourse, there were plenty of instances in which religious communities were embracing and pursuing science and where scientists often described what they were doing as elaborating and describing the Lord's creation. These two different forces of seeing science and religion in harmony with one another and seeing them in conflict with one another were in fact going on all of the time. And so for Probably close to three decades now, historians have really looked at this and said, the real story isn't one of either conflict or harmony. It's more complex than that. The science and religion at war narrative. Why has that been so popular? Why has that persisted if it isn't true? I think there's a couple of reasons why. One of them has to do with questions of cultural control. If you can identify a clear-cut enemy to what you see as sort of the cultural boundaries that you are trying to place in society, then you can use those enemies to help define where those boundaries lie. So if we say, for example, that organized religion is deliberately attempting to impede scientific progress, then that creates a narrative that allows scientists to see what they are doing as an act of liberatory experience, as an act of overcoming entrenched power. 
That was certainly a narrative that was popular in the 19th century at a time when religious groups and religious organizations had quite a great deal of power. This was especially true, for example, in 19th century England, where membership in the Church of England was a requisite for participation in quite a lot of functions in society. In the United States, religious toleration was a pretty rapidly settled issue from the really from the beginning of the Bill of Rights, and to some extent even before that. But again, the question was religion as a cultural force and cultural authority. A lot of times what we saw even later in American history was the use of political Christianity as sort of a tool that enforced cultural norms. And by framing science as something that opposed that political force, it was easier to sort of define and polarize what was politically at stake. So what I think I'm hearing you say is that both scientists and religious people had reason for advancing the idea that science and religion were at war. It benefited them both. Am I hearing that correctly? At times, yes. At other times, it really benefited them to emphasize the idea of harmony, even when they didn't agree on what that harmony was. Hmm. Okay, now, let me ask you to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, Because when I came onto the religion beat way back in the Dark Ages, I spent a lot of time writing about the battle over the teaching of evolution in public schools. That meant that I had to reach out to the Discovery Institute, right? And the Discovery Institute promoted the teaching of what they called intelligent design, right? Now, for at least the first 10, 15 years I was on this beat, intelligent design came up every year. Every year we had to write one or two stories about evolution, intelligent design. What has happened to that? I can't think of the last time I heard a peep from the Discovery Institute. So tell me, Does this mean that the creationism evolution battle at the public school level is done or what's going on there? I think the real answer is that it's taken on a different form. Um, I will say that the Discovery Institute and other advocates of intelligent design are quite clear that they see what they're doing is to be very different from creation science. Strictly speaking, I think we would define creation science as a form of looking at nature that attempts to confirm a narrative that is given in the Bible. Intelligent design doesn't make explicit claims about reconciliation with the Bible. So to that extent, they are very different. Mm. One of the things that we really make an effort to show in the new book is that intelligent design is also very different from the design arguments that we often observed happening back in the days before Darwin, particularly those of the natural theological arguments like William Paley. Paley may be most famous for the idea of the watchmaker argument, the idea that if you look at a watch and you watch how it operates, even if you don't know what it's doing, you can infer that it is in fact created by some sort of intelligence that had a purpose behind that. What we try to show is that both because of the context of its time and really the logic of the argument, intelligent design looks very different from the natural theology of 200 years ago. But to answer your question, the Discovery Institute is still putting out its own media. It's still operating. But I think you're right to say that it is not making the kind of public 
impact that it had in earlier eras. I think the main reason for that is that since about the 1960s, when the anti-evolution laws were in fact ruled unconstitutional, creation science became popular starting in the 60s because it presented the idea that it wasn't religion, it was a form of science. A form of science that happened to agree with religion, but was reaching those same conclusions scientifically. In the 1980s, a series of federal court rulings determined that creation science was was still a form of religion uh, because its conclusions were, if you will, predetermined to coincide with a biblical account of creation. So this is arguments about things like how Noah's flood is responsible for the dispersity of fossils and the artifacts in the world that we see and claiming that the earth is in fact 6,000 or so years old. Intelligent design really initially becomes popular in the wake of creation science being ruled unconstitutional in the 1980s. In fact, the Dover trial in 2004, one of the things that came up with the book of pandas and people was that it was originally written as a creation science text and that the words intelligent design were sort of substituted in for creation science at the last minute in the revision process. Throughout this legal history, There's been this supposition that the way that you can tell whether something in the classroom is inappropriate is not by saying, is it or is it not religion, but saying, is it or is it not science? Mm. So in some ways, what the courts did was enshrine this idea that science and religion are diametrically opposed to each other because they basically Mm. said, is it religion? Well, if it's not science, then it must be. One thing that really struck me in the book was that you argue that today seeming debates between science and religion are really less about either one and more about personal freedom, right? So tell me a little bit about that. When did that shift come around and how did we see that play out in the religious response to the pandemic's requirement early on that houses of worship be uh, shuttered and in the subsequent vaccine mandate. How did it go from what do I believe and more into what are my rights? When we started writing this new edition of the book, the pandemic was not even on the horizon. We had no idea that that was going to be a topic. We had discussed a little bit about talking about the history of vaccination and the history of the provision of medical care as a topic that we needed to spend a bit more time on because we knew that there were already controversies over compulsory vaccination and about beliefs in vaccination. And we felt like it deserved some attention, but certainly we didn't expect anything like what we saw during the, during the rise of the COVID pandemic. What we did see was on one hand, I think some very, you know, very, very sort of loud examples of religious organizations, specific churches, refusing to comply with mandates either to stop holding services in person, in some cases providing religious guidance to people against quarantine or against masking, and ultimately once there were vaccines available against vaccination as well. But at the same time, we saw a ton of responses that showed that many religious people and many religious organizations make use of science in their everyday lives in ways that need to be acknowledged. 
I think for me, one of the most stunning things was the decision by many Jews who don't typically use electronics during holy days uh, to do things like hold Passover seders on Zoom or on other electronic platforms. That was a stunning decision that was in some ways unprecedented. And it speaks, I think, more broadly to the way that technology changes the availability of religious practice and, mm. and the kinds of religious practice. These aren't entirely without precedent. I think one thing we mention in the book is that a hundred years ago, when germ theory was still pretty new, there were some Christian churches that debated over whether or not during the 1918 flu pandemic, um, whether it still made sense to take communion out of the same cup or whether to take the consecrated communion wine and to distribute it into separate cups. Mm-hmm. And there were churches that, that split over that issue. Mm-hmm. So the idea that um, religious groups would interpret science differently or balance the evidence of science against the concerns of their ritual and practice is not itself new. But we also saw that even groups that were being portrayed as rejecting science by doing things like wanting to hold services in person, sometimes against government restrictions, were were still showing that they were doing things that were making use of science, but interpreting it differently. And we talked specifically about uh, some churches in Chicago that wanted to continue holding services despite the governor's mandate. In the letter that they wrote, they talked about using hand sanitizers and practicing social distancing and all of the remediative measures that they would take in order to be able to worship in person. Another thing that you talk about in the book is the 30-meter telescope, the TMT, Mm -hmm. in Hawaii. Tell me how you see science and religion either colliding there or working together there. Tell me what you see there and why it's different. Why is it in the book? Yeah, so this was something that has also been going on while we were writing it, although it began even before. The 30-meter telescope is a proposed telescope. 30 meters has to do with the focal length of the primary mirror. This would be one of the largest ground-based telescopes ever built. It's an exciting scientific project. The information it it could potentially reveal would be fascinating to understanding the origins of the universe and its early evolution. Mm. For better or worse, the site where astronomers wanted to locate this was on the top of Mauna Kea, on land that has always held a a spiritually significant and ritually important place to indigenous Hawaiians. There has been a pretty strong protest against building this on land that has been held sacred, that has historical and spiritual significance to the people who are indigenous to these islands. Some astronomers, thinking back to their own history, have basically said, why would we allow the religious beliefs of these people to stand in the way of science. Letting religion stand in the way of science is precisely what the Catholic Church did to Galileo 400 years earlier. Mm. And I think one of the things that we wanted to address in the book was the way in which these stories of science and religion continue to shape public policy and public attitudes today. Because when you look at it on the face of it, that comparison seems absurd. Mm. 
you're talking about a multinational collaboration of, you know, very well empowered people who are trying to build the telescope. And you're looking at a historically very, very oppressed, colonized area of indigenous people who are fighting for land rights, for land that was was once theirs without any question. To say that they are the ones who hold the power the way that the Catholic Church held power over the fate of Galileo seems like the most absurd of false equivalences. But that narrative of science being oppressed by religion, which sort of takes the Galileo story as one of its founding myths, is, is still powerful today. That was Dr. Adam Shapiro, co-author of Science and Religion, a very short introduction, appearing this month in a new, heavily revised edition. You can find out more about many of the things Dr. Shapiro discussed, like the 2004 Dover Evolution Trial and the 30-meter telescope and more on our website, interfaithradio.org. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. While you're there, you can help us by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find our show. Special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thank you to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and me, Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your guest host, Kimberly Winston. We'll see you next week.